Thank you. No place I'd rather be. Welcome to uh, the orchard. As uh, Daniel told you, Charlie's on his sabbatical, and so you got me today. <laughs> hey, can somebody bring a table up? I'm so disorganized that when I speak, I don't have all this uh, choreography lined out. <clears throat> so, if you have your uh, program bulletin, if you'll take out your sermon study sheet. Today we are at Luke chapter 24. Can anybody tell me without looking what Luke chapter 24 is about? <clears throat> the resurrection. <clears throat> Isn't it amazing? We say it so casually. Resurrection. But what does resurrection actually mean? I mean physically and literally. What does it mean? So somebody's got to be dead to qualify for resurrection. <laughs> we say it so casually, but do you realize how, how unique and earth-shattering something like to say resurrection would be? And we're used to it. We're like, yeah, sure, Jesus, resurrection. You know, we get a little golf clap. But good night, resurrection. And how did he come out of the tomb? I mean, what kind of shape was he in? <clears throat> well, he was in pretty good shape, better than when he went in. In fact, the Bible tells us he had what is called a resurrection body. Uh, a body that was immortal. Now, after his resurrection, he could walk, he could talk, he could chew. He could walk through walls. He could be different places. But it was a physical body. He rose with a physical body, renewed, different than it had been before. Now, the best thing we have to compare it to is zombies, right? Isn't it incredible in the last, I don't know how long, 100 years, that when writers attempt to depict someone who's been dead and then alive again, it's always worse. I mean, did you, did you read Pet Cemetery? Stephen King? Anybody read Stephen King? Oh, yeah. It's like, you don't want to be around a zombie. And I don't know where they got their appetite for eating other humans. I mean, look at the comparison. The very best <clears throat> any authors could come up with to describe someone who had been dead and now they're alive again <clears throat> is a zombie. A walking dead. And you know the only thing you can do for those guys. You just kind of blow them apart, I guess, what's on TV. So it's incredible, 2,000 years ago, people weren't talking about resurrection. The Jews had a faint idea that someday in the future, all the Jewish people would be resurrected to the latter days. But no one saw this coming. One person resurrected bodily, not spiritually, but bodily, resurrected. If... Um, it's such a key component for Christianity. Without the resurrection, where would Christianity be? Think about it just for a minute, because you probably haven't thought about it, because we always had the resurrection. But without it, what would Christianity be like? A mere philosophy. You see, without the resurrection, what would the disciples 
have taught if they were willing to teach anything. I mean, after your so-called Rabbi Messiah dies, and that's it, it's over, if they were to teach anything that they learned from the rabbi, what would they teach? What? Love your enemy? Blessed are the meek? How's that working for you? I mean, look what happened to your rabbi. That didn't work very well. I mean, there's, there's just nowhere to go. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, would his payment of dying on the cross have been sufficient to forgive your sins? Or did the resurrection verify from God's point of view that it truly was the Son of God who had died and that the sacrifice had been accepted? You see, the resurrection is key. Without the resurrection, there's no power of the Holy Spirit. There's no Holy Spirit. Without the resurrection, all you got is the teachings of Jesus without the power. Now, wait a second. That sounds like the Christians I know. Just the teachings without the power? Have you tried to apply and live the teachings of Jesus, the law? There's no power in those teachings without the resurrection and the Holy Spirit. Now, since it's such an incredible event, how do you think the Bible would describe it? I mean, if you were one of the disciples and you wanted to write it in such a way that really showed the world the incredibleness of this event, how would you write it? Well, I think I know how I would write it. <clears throat> if I were Peter, say, or John or Jane, I would say that uh, during the evening, Saturday evening before the Sunday morning, we all got our banners and our candles, and we all came and surrounded the tomb. Soldiers were a little un uneasy with all of us there, but we were going to energize our base because we knew that within a few minutes that we would see the, the, the mouth of that tomb, that rock. We knew it would pop open, and we knew Jesus would come forward resurrected. We knew he could do it. We always believed. And then it happened. Bang! And there the, the front knocked off of the tomb. <clears throat> And we're cheering and we're jumping and we're like, yay, it's Jesus, Jesus. Come on, come on, Jesus, come on. And he comes out three times the size he was before. I mean, he was so big. And we went up and, Jesus, we knew you could do it. And he says, oh, you're my disciples. You've always believed. So proud of you. We put him on our shoulders and carried him in the streets of Jerusalem. And that's the story of Easter. <laughs> now, really. If you were going to try to sell a world religion, wouldn't you write something sensational like that? <clears throat> well, let's contrast it with the way Luke wrote it. Luke chapter 24. And we're going to go to verse 1. Once you have in mind what we discussed so far, that resurrections are not commonplace and that humans, even to this day, can't get their mind wrapped around what it would be like for a resurrection to be a good thing, and that the key to Christianity is the resurrection. Listen to how it starts out. On the first day of the week, 
Very early in the morning, the women... Okay, stop right there. Okay, if I were going to write a story that would launch a world religion, I would not start with the ladies. Now, I know PC today and all, it's, it's, good, it's good to go. But in that day, if you had a woman as a witness of anything, she could not testify in court. They would not accept the testimony of a woman or many women on any legal matter. But wait a second, the women. Why would you... St- <laughs> I mean, you got a great thing like the resurrection. Why on earth would you start it off like this? Unless it's the way it happened. The women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, the tomb, we learned earlier, in fact, uh, let's go back to 53 of the previous chapter. Um, Joseph of Arimathea had asked for Jesus' body. He took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, placed it in a tomb cut in a rock. Uh, we learn from the other Gospels that uh, Joseph of Arimathea had a, a new tomb. And of these tombs, um, apparently the rock around uh, <clears throat> Jerusalem, near where the crucifixion took place, was maybe like sandstone. They were able to dig back into it, and they made a tomb. It's like a cave, but it's got a little um, shelf along one side, about knee-high, where you lay the body. And in the preparation for that tomb, he had to have a stone made. Now, these stones had to cover the mouth of the tomb, and they were rounded. I guess they had been chiseled down, So they would be several feet thick and wide enough to roll in front of the mouth of the tomb. And it weighed probably two tons. And so when they prepared the gravesite, the tomb, they would put, (coughs) they'd have maybe, I don't know, 20 men or some oxen or something. They would put the stone against the wall of of the mountainside in a groove above the mouth of the cave. And when they were ready to put the body in and seal it, they would pull a little chalk out from in front of that rock and roll it down, by gravity, into a slot sealing the mouth of the tomb. So it wouldn't be easy to move after you had put it down in that slot. And it weighed so much. So Joseph of Arimathea, apparently a man of some wealth, he had this tomb, just happened to have it, I guess, And he placed it in the tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. So we got a fresh tomb here. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Now, this is really important. In fact, I don't think I had really paid attention to the significance of this. The women, after Jesus had died on Friday, later that afternoon, they saw Joseph of Arimathea taking down the body and taking it to a tomb. They went there, saw the tomb. Now, this is not a graveyard. This is not where you got a whole bunch. This is just one place, one tomb. Saw the tomb and got close enough that they saw Jesus laying inside on that slab. You see that? They saw his body. They saw how it was laid. What usually do they do with uh, 
people they crucify. Well, the Romans sometimes leave them on the cross to be eaten by birds and to rot. But oftentimes they take them down after they died and they simply throw them on a cart, take them to the dump and throw them out. So you've got all these bones and decomposing bodies down in the, uh, the, the dump. So it's very significant that Joseph of Arimathea, who was one of the council of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, asked for the body of Joseph, uh, of Jesus, took it and put it in a tomb. And the women followed and saw where and how Jesus was laid. We're told, here it is, uh, they went home prepared spices and perfumes, but rested on the next day. We're told in the other Gospels that Joseph and Nicodemus um, used a hundred pounds of uh, spices and ointments and grave clothes. They wrapped him up like we would think a mummy. And they put myrrh and these spices and the ointments in between the layers. <clears throat> so that when Jesus was prepared for burial by Joseph of Arimathea, and this is very typical the way they did the bodies, he was laid there, looked like a mummy with a separate uh, covering over his head, but he would be wrapped with all these spices, and they're like glue. So Jesus is laying on this slab in the tomb, 100 pounds of spices and wrapped in this, uh, these grave cloths. It says the women took spices they prepared and went to the tomb. Now, why would the women go to the tomb <coughs> with spices? Well, have you ever known a woman to trust a man the way he does things? <coughs> I, I don't know. You know. They probably thought, well, who's Joseph to be preparing a body? I didn't know anything about that. And so they had their own spices, but they knew that they had a problem with the stone. In the other Gospels, it says they said, who would roll away the stone? They were talking about this on the way because they knew they could not roll the stone back uphill in that groove. It's too heavy, too big. And when they got there, it says, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now the word there used in John is not just <clears throat> rolled back where it was. The word is ariel, which means it is if it was picked up and carried away. So the stone wasn't near the mouth of the cave anymore. How would that happen? How many people would it take? How many oxen would it take to move that stone without leaving drag marks and have it somewhere so they must have been amazed at that. So they came and they saw, guess what else wasn't there? The soldiers weren't there. There was no one else there. So they saw the tomb and the stone had been rolled away. But when they entered, think about that for a moment. These are just ordinary women. They loved Jesus. They followed him. But it says when they entered, would you go into a grave? I, I think this is incredible. They, they walked in and entered, and what did they see? Well, we're told later in other Gospels, when they came in, they saw the uh, cloth that had wrapped Jesus with all of those spices laying there flat like a cocoon with the butterfly gone. And the napkin, that the one that covered his head was at a different spot. It says when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
it's hard for us to get in our minds how normal these people were and how they would have normally reacted to stuff because we've got them like in stained glass sainthood. I think they would have come and saw the stone moved away, poked their head in and said, what the? I mean, they would be flabbergasted. They didn't see Jesus. I mean, if you were to drive home today after church and drive to your house and your house is gone completely and the lot is the way it was before a house was even built, what would you think? You would be flabbergasted. You'd be over, you're like, what the? What, what is going on? It's not that they saw something they didn't think they would see. They, they didn't see what they thought they would see. The body of a dead man was gone and the grave clothes weren't disturbed. It wasn't like some grave robbers came in threw the wrappings off, threw them all over the place, and took the body. It was all still there nice and neat. And they entered, didn't find Jesus, while they were wondering. I'd love to have seen them wondering. You're like, hmm, I wonder, I wonder where he went. I wonder what happened here. I mean, they were just overwhelmed, befuddled. While they were wandering, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. Now, that wouldn't freak you out. <laughs> Who are these guys? Because it's like their clothes are lit up like a Christmas tree. They're just, they're glowing, they're shining, they're like lightning. Uh, in their fright. Now, again, if you can get this out of Bible context and think about the women's fright, climbing all over each other. But it says that in their fright, they bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look <coughs> for the living among the dead? These were identified as angels. He is not here. He has risen. First time in history, probably last time for a long time that you hear the word from inside of a grave he's not here he has risen hadn't been taken off didn't exhume the body he's risen <clears throat> why do you look for the living among the dead now this is cool remember how he told you while he was still with you in galilee don't you remember We've studied through Luke, and we've seen how that Jesus told his disciples and the followers over and over, the Son of Man, go to Jerusalem, delivered up to the Gentiles, be beaten, be crucified, and rise again. But what did the disciples say after Jesus said that? Almost every time. They didn't say anything. In fact, in Mark, it says they didn't understand and they were afraid to ask him. It's like when your parents are in their 60s and you're there at their house for dinner. And they say, well, when we're gone, you kids will probably want to divide up the place. Mom and Dad, don't. We don't want to talk about that. Now, that's a long way off. They didn't want to talk about their Messiah, their rabbi they thought was the Messiah, dying. Because they couldn't wrap their head around resurrection it hadn't happened they hadn't well they saw it one time when jesus raised lazarus but other than that they're like how would he do it if he were the one who was dead himself then he wouldn't have any way to do it 
So they didn't want to ask him. In fact, oftentimes after he told them he was going to die and rise again, they began to fight among themselves about who was the best disciple. Yeah. And so the angel said, don't you remember, in Galilee he told you, quote, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified on the third day, and be raised again. It said, then they remembered. Can you remember a conversation from two years ago? With someone? Probably some you can. Three years ago. Or even farther back, if it was significant. And, and this conversation that Jesus said this in would have been startling. And so probably once the angel reminded them, it says they remembered I remember where I was on that road when he said, I remember where we were when he said that. They remembered. But before that moment, what were they expecting when they came to the tomb? A dead body. How could the disciples have been so dense that they did not understand or look forward to the resurrection? It says, when they, women, came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna. Now, Joanna was the wife of Herod's steward. Uh, Mary, the mother of James, and the others, and they told this to the apostles. Where are the apostles? Why aren't they camped out by the tomb? Because they didn't expect anything to happen other than the soldiers coming to round them up and arrest them. So wherever they found the apostles, they were cowering somewhere, probably in some room, maybe the upper room where they had the... Maybe they went back to where we had the, the Last Supper. It says, they told the apostles, but they did not believe the women. I told you. They didn't believe the women. Because the words seemed to them like nonsense. Has a man ever told you he didn't believe you? It sounded like you weren't making sense. Well, it started a long time ago. Sounded like nonsense. Now, but, so, okay. So Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself, what happened? How could he have spent three plus years with Jesus, seen all the miracles, heard Jesus say, I'll rise again, and when it happens, when it comes to it, he's so unable to get his arms around it to accept it. He doesn't go jumping up and down and yelling, hey, he's risen, it's good. He walks away pondering and wondering how did this happen? What does this mean? Now next week, the message of uh, the road to Emmaus will begin to describe Jesus appearing to different disciples and what that means. But let's look at this for a second. If the resurrection is the key theological component of Christianity, how important is it that it actually happened? How important is it that it's true? In other words, if the resurrection of Jesus physically never happened, 
But somehow, legend made it so that the stories we now have, but it didn't happen. What would that do? And how can we know? It's very interesting. A couple hundred years ago, it's what's called the Enlightenment in Europe, where mankind, uh, philosophers especially and others, began to say that the ultimate authority is mankind's reason. Unless we can reason it rationally, it cannot happen. It does not exist. In other words, um, looking at the laws of nature... If something violates the laws of nature, then it cannot have happened. Because there's nothing other than the laws of nature that we can observe. It rules out God and the miraculous. Perhaps you know of Thomas Jefferson's Bible, where he actually, with scissors, cut out all of the miracles of Jesus' life. And all he was left with was just the teachings. And like we said a while ago, that would be fairly weak. And so 200 years ago, during the Enlightenment, people began to investigate the veracity of the resurrection. I mean, really began to look at it. Historians, uh, scientists, medical people, philosophers began to investigate because even skeptics knew that if the resurrection is true, then you've got a whole new phenomenon to deal with. If, if someone were to prove to you that the resurrection actually happened, that Jesus rose from the grave, what choices would you then have to make based on that? Many people float along and they think, well, the resurrection is just a legend, just a myth or whatever. And so they go on and they really don't consider Jesus. They just kind of think he was a nice guy, good teacher. But if the proof of the resurrection stood before you, if you knew for certain the resurrection happened, then what choices would you be forced into? He's either the Son of God who had victory over death, and if he is, then that means that he had claims on my life because of else that he said. If he did not rise from the grave, then he was maybe a good man, a liar, or a lunatic. But the resurrection doesn't leave you any wiggle room if it actually happened. Now, how can we know that it happened? Looking back, over the last 200 years, like I told you, it has been investigated. You can go online, check it out. There's a good book by um, Josh McDowell called More Than a Carpenter. You can check that out. There are so many, many books written now about his resurrection and the verifiability of it. (coughs) How do we know? Because the tomb was empty. If the disciples made this story up and went into Jerusalem, which is right there, it's right in town, and said, Jesus is risen, what would the authorities have done first thing? Come on, it's not that hard. They go check out the tomb. And if it's still sealed, by the way, it was sealed with a Roman seal that under penalty of death, no one could break the seal. In fact, it's so funny. Uh, Probably within the reign of Tiberius, who was the emperor while Jesus was alive, or um, uh, Caligula, the next one, 
there was an, uh, a f- discovery in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is where Jesus grew up. And that discovery uh, says, Ordinance of Caesar. It's my pleasure that graves and tombs remain undisturbed. And he goes on to make disturbing a grave the death, a death penalty. Now, why would you have an ordinance that you can't disturb graves? Because here's Caesar off in Rome, hears from Pontius Pilate and the others about this so-called Jesus Christ. In fact, um, during Caligula, in A.D. 49, it says that he, he, uh, he, he blamed the riots in Rome on Christians because the Jews, as Rome counted contentious disturbances at the instigation of Christus, or Christ, he expelled them from the city. And so it could be that the rumors, the truth of the resurrection had gotten around to the point where Caesar didn't want any more of these resurrections happening. And so he made it a penalty of death if you mess with the seal. So you've got the tomb that's empty, the stone that's rolled away, the seal that's broken. <clears throat> In Matthew, you read about the guards who were there. When they, whatever happened to them, whether, whether the commotion of the tomb being opened caused them to be unconscious or whatever it was, when they returned to their senses, they went into Jerusalem and told the chief priest that the tomb was empty, the stone was rolled away, and they didn't know what was going on. The chief priest said, look, we will pay you to say you were asleep. And the disciples came and took the body. And if the Roman authorities get on you about it, we'll cover for you. And so that was the rumor that circulated. The disciples stole the body. Now, how likely is that these 11 cowards who are somewhere in a room hiding away without the ability of all 11 of them to even move the stone back up the trough, let alone away, that they would steal the body. In fact, seven weeks later, Peter preached at Pentecost about Jesus, whom you killed, who rose again, and then he was willing to die for the fact that Jesus was Christ, the Messiah, that he had risen from the grave. If you had stolen the body and hid it away somewhere, would you die and say that, yes, He's risen. You wouldn't die for a lie that you knew. You might die for a lie that you didn't know was untrue. No one's going to die for a lie. The disciples were radically changed from craven cowards to confident, courageous apostles of Jesus Christ. And all of them except for John lost his life and he was boiling oil because of their faith and preaching of Christ Jesus. The change in the life of the disciples is enough that has psychologists scratching their head wondering how could that have happened unless they actually saw the tomb and saw Jesus resurrected. And so down through the years, the proof that Jesus resurrected, rose from the grave, has been mounting up as history and archaeology has uncovered more fragments of manuscripts, and more artifacts in the Holy Land. No one, <clears throat> no one who has seriously looked at the question of the resurrection any longer denies it. Your neighbors, if you ask them about, do you believe the resurrection, they would say, oh, 
No, probably not, you know. I mean, Jesus, he was okay, but no resurrection. But have they investigated it? A man, well, in fact, several men, uh, men specifically, who got tired of Christians talking about the resurrection. They set out to investigate and disprove it and write a book that would expose the resurrection as a fraud. One such man ended up writing a book, Who Moved the Stone? That wasn't the book he intentionally (laughs) intended to write. He intentionally intended to debunk the resurrection, but as he investigated it, he became convinced through his research that it was an ironclad proof that Jesus had been resurrected. So that brings us to the question, what does that mean for you? What does it mean for you that Jesus has risen from the grave? Now think about it for a moment. If he had not risen, we wouldn't be here. None of this would be happening. But if he rose from the grave, what does it mean to you? Now, this is an assignment I want to give you. Go online or your app or in your Bible and look up the word resurrection and or the word raised, R-E-I-S-E, raised. And then look at the rest of the New Testament because the rest of the New Testament delineates, expounds upon what it means for you and what the benefits of the resurrection are for you in this life and the next. Now, unfortunately, even Christians have not investigated this, nor pondered this, nor gone into this deep enough and far enough to acquire and to appropriate the benefits of the resurrection. Unfortunately, there are so many Christians who live encrusted in tombs of resentment or bitterness. Entombed, unable to escape from worry and fear. It's time to break open whatever that tomb is in which you are letting part of you reside. It's time for the resurrection to come into your heart like a bright light, like a laser that opens up the crust around whatever it is of your life that's held you captive because Jesus has risen. He has risen from the grave. He rose with a better body than he went in with, and that has implications for you in this life and the next. Will you follow up with that? Will you look up those two words, resurrection and raised? Will you do some digging on your own and see what the New Testament writer said you would receive as a benefit of the resurrection? Let's pray together. And as we do, let's prepare our hearts for this meal that Jesus had with his disciples the last night he was with them before he died. He said of the bread, he said, this is my body broken for you so that you may live. He said of the cup, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin." As you come and partake of this today, I would challenge you to ask God, what does it mean? What does it mean for me today? What do I need to take advantage of today 
that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. So, Father, I pray that uh, we here will be blessed to understand the implications, to appropriate and integrate and put into operation what you intended for us to experience as Jesus rose from the grave. We don't want to leave any of it in the grave. We want to take all that you intended and live it with a robust faith. In Jesus' name, amen.